0: You're listening to the Magic Our Way podcast with Kevin, Danny, Eli, and Lee. Oh, I love the way their foul little minds work. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Jumbo, everyone. Harambe. And welcome to another edition of...
0: The Magic R-Way Magic R-Way Magic R-Way Magic R-Way The
2: Magic R-Way Podcast They are truly magical and whatnot
1: Uh. Hey! Sante Santa, everyone! You are listening to the Magic Ray podcast from New Orleans, Louisiana. And on this show, we invite you to feel the libations. Feel it, feel it! We are artistic buffs talking about Disney stuff, and this is a show in which every opinion is welcome. MagicRW.com is where you can find us for this show. We discuss the New Orleans connection to Disneyland's party gras parade with former Walt Disney Entertainment cast member Michael Maines. And look. This isn't your typical polished, practice pixie dust, and Disney podcast. No, sir. We are not in the parks every day trying to tell you how the new Mandalorian and Grogu walk-around character is doing.
2: That's right, Kev. We're here to drink, talk some
0: Disney, and have a celebration. It's a jubilation. It's a party gras. (laughs) That's right. So you guys live it up and think it up while we just keep on drinking it up.
1: My name is Kevin. And I'm Danny. I'm Eli. And Lee couldn't make it to the show tonight.
2: He was that close he almost made it but we were in the middle of the interview yes we're
1: in the middle of the interview. it's okay it's okay he'll be back soon hopefully hopefully and we'll see what happens but guys look enough of our jibber jabber let's go party
0: party Craw
1: <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the hub our main topic segment of the show and for this hub I wanted to explore some Disney history by discussing Disneyland's Party Gras Parade, which ran from January 11th, 1990 to November 18th, 1990. And in case there are any new listeners that may not be aware, Magic Our Way is a New Orleans-based podcast, and we always enjoy talking about New Orleans' influence on Disney, such as in the movies, theme parks, you know, all that stuff. And in fact, you know, you can go to listen to episodes 319, 320, 321, where we discuss a lot of these influences. It just so happens that the reason why I started researching this parade is because we mentioned the Party Gras Parade in episode 319. However, we only touched upon its existence and didn't do a deep dive. So here is that deep dive to continue our stories of New Orleans' influence on Disney. Now, in 1990, Disneyland celebrated its 35th anniversary and had a variety of events to celebrate the occasion. But at the center of it all was the Party Gras Parade, which at the time was referred to as the biggest parade in Disneyland history. And in my research for the show, I discovered the name of a person who was at the center of the parade's creation. That name is Michael Maynes. Sure, since that time, he's done a myriad of live entertainment projects with various organizations, including, I don't know, a little company you might have heard called Paramount Pictures Special Events. <laughs> you know. But for the purposes of this show and the topic of which we'll be speaking, I want to travel back to the 13 years in which Michael's with... Walt Disney Entertainment, where he served as Director of Entertainment Creative Development. Before that, he was Senior Producer. Before that, he was Senior Show Director Writer, which is when the Party Gras Parade was created. So with all that being said, guys, I am happy to introduce Mr. Michael Maines to the Magic R.A. Podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm
2: doing great. How are you guys? Doing wonderful. Thank you for coming on. Awesome, man. Definitely appreciate
3: it. I appreciate the invite.
1: Yeah. Thank you for coming on. And so uh, just to give uh, the listeners a background, maybe not familiar with your work or whatever else, just a full disclosure, I work at a university as an academic advisor. And I always have the conversations of you know, uh, the students, what they majored in college versus where they ended up. And I'm curious to know, just to start off with your beginnings, what led you up to your career at Disney, maybe what you majored in college, graduated college, and how that led to you starting to work for the Disney company.
3: Yeah, so it's interesting. So I went to the uh, University of Arizona as a uh, theater major, actually a, a, a directing, theater directing BFA major, and I graduated from college. I started a little theater in Tucson that's still there today, and when I graduated, though, I said I had, I had larger aspirations, so I packed up an old Volvo, and I moved to New York City. Without a job.
1: Wow. Wow.
3: (laughs) And became a theater director in New York City for uh, about almost seven years. And uh, from there, somebody who knew my work from there actually uh, hooked me up with Disney. And Disney hired me as a senior show director out of New York.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So you went from Arizona to New York. And Uh and then you had New York to Southern California. (laughs) All in your little Volvo? Did you?
3: Nah, the Volvo lasted about two weeks in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got rid of that. It was. Uh, I I quickly learned that a that a car in downtown Manhattan was not was not the thing for me.
1: Mm, okay, so. You made yeah. the you made the cross country trip, and then she got you got the job as a senior director writer. That's right. Um, and so, what uh, can you give us a little insight of what that role entails? Like, uh,
3: what did you work? You know, it was interesting because uh, so it was. You know, it was. Uh, I, I I didn't. I came from a legit theater background, so I didn't. I didn't know, to be honestly, very much about theme park business other than having gone to Disneyland as a kid, right? Multiple times. I grew up in Arizona, so I I'd gone there. I didn't know much about it. I didn't know the scale or the depth. So. We did at Disney Entertainment at that time. We did everything. So I, I did a, a a whole bunch of stage shows for. I did I did all kinds of shows for them. I did Pocahontas stage show for them. I did Hunchback of Notre Dame stage for show for them. I did all kinds of parades and special events. And Disney's special events at the time was like the largest special event production company in the world. And from halftime shows to big corporate special events, that companies would come to us and say. Produce this, produce that, produce this. So we had our hands in just a ton, a ton of stuff. So everything you did was different and unique, and it had a, it had a, a demanding brand and style to it that uh, that I appreciated. I appreciated the quality of the work, and I appreciated the people who worked there and the devotion to quality and kind of a guest experience piece that I have taken with me to every job since leaving Disney. So, but it was, it was, it was a variety of stuff. It's like, who goes to school to do a parade? I I, I missed that class. If that class was, I I didn't take that class.
1: It was an elective, one off elective. It was an elective,
3: right? But So it was just very interesting and I think what was, what worked for me with the company at the time and they were just astoundingly good to me was that they let me kind of bring new fresh approaches of entertainment to the company and didn't ever squash me on any of those kinds of thinkings. We did, before I did uh, Party Gras, in 87, 88, I was the uh, event creator director for an event called Blast of the Past. And this is when they were doing, they used to do seasonal events that were overlay events like they did a state fair thing and they and they did this blast thing, which was kind of a 50s salute thing and it was so it was first done in i think 88 and then again in 89 and they were so successful that they just kept doing them and they were they were like 12 week mini events and they were overlay to the park all right Ooh. so they'd overlay a theme and a style and entertainment pieces and we do all of that stuff and so and actually during in eighty seven, I think I think it was eighty seven, it might have been eighty-eight, I developed a stage show. This is I'm getting to kind of the roots of part out here a little bit. Okay. I developed a show as part of Main Street as part of a Blast of the Past called the Main Street Hop. And I can remember coming up with this concept, and I was actually in jury duty, and I'm scribbling <laughs> away, and I have this concept of actually and I'm scribbling away, and I'm not paying attention to much, and I'm scribbling away thinking about taking Main Street and transforming it into one big stage, right? Mm. And that had never been done there before. And I'm thinking about, well, gosh, how would I, how would I do that? And it was a different way. And What I, what I, what I brought to the park was I, have, I believed my entire tenure there that Disneyland is great on showing you what to see, where to see it. They'll, they'll, they'll have a ride and they'll point you in the direction they want you to see it. But in my experience, memories... Lasting memories get built in spontaneous interaction and unique experiences, less forced, less directed. Mm-hmm. And so I was always kind of interested in breaking down those walls wherever I could and creating opportunities for guests and particularly kids to interact in some fashion. You, you put a kid on, at the time, you put a kid on Indiana Jones, he will remember that ride forever and it cost $25 million at the time. You put that kid on the side of the road and have him come out into the street and dance with Minnie Mouse. That kid will live, will remember that his whole life, and it cost you a lot less than twenty-five million dollars to do. <laughs> and and those kinds of memories were things that I was really interested in mining and look and going after and breaking down and creating opportunities for entertainment to reach out of a more controlled environment that we had everywhere and create experiences. That were, that were brand appropriate and were meaningful to people. So I developed this, stage, this street show called the Main Street Hub. And the challenge with it was it had to be really long because the Main Street's really long and it couldn't be like a centerpiece thing because people couldn't see it from both ends. So I created five units that were basically identical and kind of like parade units. And it was static, so it'd roll out and it did this show and people would... Dance, and it was a whole production number, and Marilyn Magnus, who with, was with Disney forever and a very talented director-choreographer, right, choreographed it for me. And we had hula hoops coming off the roofs, and we had confetti flying <laughs> off the roofs, and, <laughs> and, and, and we had Honda scooters scooting up and down the street, and oh, wow. big giant jukeboxes and, and and and, <laughs> and probably a cast of about 200, maybe more, 300 probably, dancers in that show. And it was great and it was very different and unique and we let, and guests got to come in and dance along and parade with us and did all kinds of stuff so that was that was an interesting Discovery, and it was actually the precursor to the Party Parade.
1: Out of curiosity, did you mostly work for productions out in Disneyland, or because full disclosure, we're New Orleans, so Walt Disney World is like our neighborhood park? Was there anything that you did over there? That uh,
3: I did, I did, I did some work. I did a a daytime show out in uh, in uh, at Epcot. did Did work there. Didn't do a lot. Didn't do as a director. Didn't do much work there. A lot of my shows got taken to, like, Party Gras went to Florida. Party Gras went to, so, and I didn't direct them because they go to Florida and other people direct them. It went to Japan. It went to lots of places. When I was, several years later, promoted to director of creative development, I did creative development for all the parks. Michael Eisner at the time wanted to centralize that process better. So we did creative development for all the parks. So we did a lot of, we'd like the creative development for Hunchback and Notre Dame came out of Disneyland and got produced at Walt Disney World, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's,
0: absolutely. But,
3: but yeah, so that's how that kind of worked. How was Michael Eisner to work with? He was great. He was wonderful. He was, you know, it was interesting. So I joined the company. It was, uh, I was so excited to join the company because I had read an article. I was in, in New York, and I read an article about, it was in Time Magazine, about sort of a the golden years renaissance at Disney, and it was about Michael and Jeffrey Katzenberg and Frank Wells. And they were really a unique, and I worked with all, all those guys pretty closely. I ended up being the lead presenter of creative to Michael and executives of entertainment oh, stuff. Wow. And, wow. and it was when Frank died way too early and young and a horrible <laughs> Absolutely,
1: yeah.
3: accident, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it kind of, it, it lost its mojo a little bit, and Michael tried, took on, and then, and then we lost Jeffrey, and that got kind of unpleasant with Michael Ovitz coming. A lot of things that didn't kind of work out. It just lost its yin and yang a little bit, and because that's what they were. They were this perfect balance of creative and financial and operational to each other, so he was great when, when Frank passed and Michael tried to take on more and more, some things got a little out of balance, I'd say. Mm -hmm, Okay. And, and asked him to do too much probably and asked him to do stuff in areas that, that he did some things not as well as he did other things. But as far as I'm concerned, he was, he was always great to me. He was a good guy and he, and he listened to me. was smart as hell. And, and he was very creative and, uh, you know, he'd look at me, and I'd sit across, him. Tr- I'm pitching my idea. And I could tell when I had him, and I could tell when I didn't have him. <laughs> he just kind of look at me. And then he'd tell me, Michael, don't pitch me. I know you can sell me. Don't sell me. Just tell me the story. Oh, <laughs> so oh, oh wow. I so cool, just had to, okay. just, all right, all right, I'll just tell you the story. So I told stories. I was a storyteller, and that's where I really ended up having to just tell me the story.
2: Yeah, the Michael Eisner. area... Uh- era is kind of where we grew up as fans of disney and i just remember every year there was something new something special something spectacular happening at a disney park and that's right he just made it so fun uh he's he's the one that i remember the most fondest like being excited about uh what was coming to disney under his stewardship well he was the one on the tv shows yeah yeah
3: Yeah. he was the guy you know and he was you know it's so funny so i got in trouble because like you know so so, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a, a, the original petting zoo got expanded because Michael's kid loved the petting zoo. <laughs> then I had the un, you know the enviable duty of tearing out the petting zoo to put the Hunchback in Notre Dame, venue there.
2: Oh, no, oh, no.
3: Yeah, he bought the Mighty Dutch because the kid was into hockey, you know. So <laughs> there's, there's all these linkages that I appreciate that were very kind of Disney-esque, you know, very family-oriented. The reasons he did things... He trusted his gut and his family and those things around him to make decisions. But they were always, he was never shy and he was a risk taker. And I always appreciated it uh, immensely. You know, he never, with me at least, he had other people to do it, but he he never, you know, uh, Bean counted us. He never, you know, he never did any of that stuff. If the story was interesting and compelling and and was good for guests, it had a good shot of... uh, Of uh, happening,
1: Uh, that's that's great to hear because you know we're in our late forties or so, and and here we are doing a Disney podcast. But I think it has a lot to do with what we grew up with, and you know the stuff that Eisner put
3: through, and and Mm -hmm. just just developed that
1: feeling, and it just stuck with us.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. I I agree, and I and I you know and not to you know not to talk out of school. You know when he left, you know this isn't a secret. You know even while I was there, I watched different executives come in and watched some some policies and dedication to what I would consider sort of brand essentials you know change a little bit and 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 not get paid the attention that they certainly did during Michael's look at I was there when it was you know it was it was Walt Walt's ghost still walked the halls pretty significantly <laughs> wow. and and there are people there I mean Jack Lindquist, who was my first president of Walt Disney you know was was Walt's first marketing manager. So there was a lot of firsthand brand life going on there that people knew what was a good show and what wasn't good show and what we should do and what we shouldn't do as a company and as an experience, you know. And when that, as time evolves and people come and go, that can evolve as well, not always for the best. And <laughs> so I think they've tried to resurrect some of that, but, you know, some maintenance things that were conspicuous that would have never happened you know uh other during michael's time happened at some times and there's just some things like that and they're mostly economically driven and i get that i understand that a thousand percent you know but it was interesting
2: yeah no yeah going back to what you're saying before about how there's very few spontaneous moments anymore now to go to disney i mean it you everything is just so regimented and scheduled and so uniformed yeah. and it just it's Static. It sucks the fun out of it when everything's so you gotta book this in advance, you gotta do that in advance. And so there was a lot more when you again under Michael, I just remember you showed up at the parks and you just did it. We were growing up, yeah.
3: yeah. And so, plus, we had you know, we had guys, we had so much live entertainment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We had we had everywhere. live entertainment. Mm-hmm. We had Videopolis, we had Carnation Plaza, we had the Golden Horseshoe, we had atmosphere talent everywhere. We had bands, we had all we, there was entertainment rolling. Two parades a day, we had entertainment rolling everywhere, and that and also we paid attention to what I call negative space. Negative space isn't a boxed attraction, isn't a ride, isn't a place where you're going or into a venue for entertainment. It's those neutral spaces that you take a breath and you experience, and sometimes you can find spontaneous entertainment surprises that you didn't expect. In those spaces those are really those are the gems yes that make that make those memories feel special yeah absolutely right yeah preach <laughs> when you go to disney world like yeah, preach
2: the characters when they show up it's, it's printed on a schedule and you just have to be there when they are i remember the first time i took my daughter to disneyland we happened to walk by the wishing well cinderella's yeah snow white's wishing well and out pops snow white Right, right there in front of my daughter and my daughter's jaw just hit the floor <laughs> and took a picture right there and it just happens because there's no posted times when characters will show up at that's Disneyland. right it just works out
3: that's magic that's the magic yes yes, yes.
2: one thing i wanted to ask you like you were talking about you know all the wonderful people you get to work with and all the different shows you're all doing i was just curious if there was ever anyone you got to work with at disney where you kind of had to Pinch yourself because you couldn't believe you were working with this person, like uh, whether it be a celebrity or, or somebody at the Disney company for years and years. Uh, is is any names pop out?
3: You know, I, I to be honest with you, there there wasn't like that. I you know I wasn't because I come from New York. I wasn't really kind of that much starstruck, and I didn't know Disney. You know, I didn't I wasn't a Disney fan at the time. I was an employee, and these are people I worked with. Now since. You know, I, I realized that I was working with a ton of giants, you know, and a lot of people, particularly the imaginary. You know, I, t- I worked with Tony Baxter for years. Oh, wow. He's famous. He's yeah. a famous guy, right? Oh, and wow. I yeah. Him. I worked with him all the time, right? <laughs> uh, Eddie Sato, you know, I still talk to Eddie Sato. He's a famous guy. You know, there's a lot of those famous guys. And I worked with uh, some of the big seven and, you know, those guys. I, you know, I worked with Roy Disney. Oh, a, lot, geez, so uh, cool. a lot on uh, on some projects. You know, I worked with, I'll tell you the, the biggest, the person that got my attention the most was uh, that I was starstruck by and I wasn't sure what to do about it. So Michael had a deal with uh, George Lucas and we were going to do a large Wild West show, live Wild West show in, in uh, Frontierland. And it was at the time that, George was doing Young Indiana Jones, which was a TV series. I remember it. Right? And yeah. so I was in charge of directing that show and producing and creating that. Cre- basically, at the beginning with just creating that show. And it involved going to uh, Skywalker Ranch, <laughs> uh, which was a oh. trip, oh. Oh, and, <laughs> uh, and going and meeting with him multiple times for hours on end and that was like the first time I did that I walk into Skywalker Ranch which is beautiful and, exciting, and a, a whole story of its own and you walk in and you know gee there's a there's a Luke Skywalker's lightsaber in a case and there's a little gold statue guy from Indiana Jones and the guy takes off and puts yes. sand and I mean there's these memento things that are like is that real? Is that, re- is that the real thing? You know it was uh and he was uh animated and wild and fun and and we we had a great time together we would we would creatively butt heads on occasion because he's a film guy and i'm a live entertainment guy (laughs) and he'd always he'd always argue sometimes they say george this is a 3500 seat theater we can't take close-ups because he'd want to do something and say well yeah and then you know we watch annie's face and she's doing this and i say yeah <laughs> let's let's surround her by eight ropers and a couple of horses and it'll be great <laughs> but you know <laughs> but, so we were, it was funny trying to work with a film guy who had at his disposal those abilities trying to get him to to sometimes argue the sensibilities of a big stage show. Yeah.
2: Fun. Cause he used to control in the viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Whole different viewpoint.
1: <laughs> so I, I was, I'm curious. Um, cause I saw this when they, when, you know, they used to do these premieres for the movies, like Hunchback and Notre Dame. They held that premiere yeah. here in the city and, and, and the Superdome. And I was there. Did you have yeah. a hand in that? Did you do anything with the, the whole, cause it was a whole production. I don't know if you were involved with that thing or not. Just I curiosity. didn't,
3: I didn't, uh, I didn't do anything with that premiere at all. I went to that premiere and they gave you a cool little, uh, cast memento thing. It's on my desk still. It's a little cell from that, from that film. But I didn't, I, I loved the show. So I, I developed, uh, creative development basically was in charge during that tenor. My last few years, at Disney, we, we translated all of the, uh, Intellectual property, animated films, into stage shows. So you know, and Beauty and the Beast had come the year before, and it went to Broadway. And we were looking at this stuff. We worked very Disney, closely with Disney Theatricals at the time, and Judson Green, who was the president of the resorts, who actually that Disney Theatricals used to be in the theme park division. Oh wow! And okay. uh, it, that's where it lived. Mm. And we were looking at Little Mermaid going to Broadway, Hunchback, and 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 actually, uh, I developed uh, Aladdin for broadway okay uh and so we did a lot of a lot of that kind of work and and so one of the shows that we did that i was frankly very proud of was uh was hunchback of notre dame because we did it in such a unique way and we did it in an immersive sort of theater in the round and the audience sat in the middle and there was a stage in the middle and then all around you outdoors was scaffolding (laughs) that the cast came in very true to theater of the period and it was really cool and and a very interesting atmosphere and it was called Festival of Fools and uh, Mm. so I, I was very involved in that and that concept went I think to every theme park I think uh I think it went to Paris, I know it went to Florida, uh I'm not sure where else it went.
1: Yes, I remember Festival of Fools
3: like in yeah. the guidebooks, you know, yeah. they
1: promote that and everything. I remember seeing that when I was younger, but um okay, so you said you were at the Hunchback of Notre Dame premiere here in New Orleans.
3: No, no, I was not. I was one out, out here in LA. So when they do these premieres, they'll do they they don't do premieres. They do cast uh, cast uh showings. And so they had a big giant... Was all the cast members get invited to a exclusive screening and this one i think was at uh at uh, disney uh at the disney studios okay cool. Mm-hmm. All right. that's cool
1: so let's let's talk about new orleans and, and just as full, yeah. dis- full disclosure so we're our byline is artistic buffs talk about disney stuff right so yeah. danny and eli they're visual artists uh, myself a performing artist, I'm a musician, so I've I've run into Disney Theatrical as a local musician a lot as they come from mm-hmm. town and they hire local musicians, which is I'm thankful yep. for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we all understand that it starts with some kind of inspiration. I'm talking about Party Gras here. And I read in the LA Times uh, that it said that you were inspired by your visit to our Mardi Gras, and I, I, I want to know a little bit more about that. All
3: right. So so the story with that is that it actually is a little slightly different genesis. So at the time, Jack Lindquist who was not the very recent president of Disneyland had just started to thing called the pigskin classic, which was going to be the kickoff collegiate bowl gamer of the season. All right. And, uh, that lasted a few years. And this was like the first year of that, I think. And he wanted to think, look at the possibility of creating a parade around Anaheim that would celebrate that event and it become like a week long event Anaheim-based, Disney-sponsored event. All kinds of ancillary things associated with it. So we said, well, let's do this. Let's go to New Orleans Mardi Gras and see what they do and let's see how it feels and and operationally look at it and how it works and, and see if there's anything to be learned from that. So Vice President of Entertainment, Vice President of Marketing, and I go to New Orleans I'd never been to Mardi Gras or New Orleans at that time before, Been since been several times. And uh, it was amazing and cool. And we learned a lot about how that city does special events better than any other city I've ever seen do those sorts of things. I still tell the story about I was there... Uh, on Bourbon Street the night, as soon as it closed, just to watch how it worked. And I'd never seen a street clean up so fast. It was a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I've never seen anything like it. You know, The maintenance of it and how that operates and how it functionally worked, it was just astounding to me. But anyway, so long, what happened there was, so I, I'm, I kind of broke off from them because they had some more operational interests and I had to sort of, I'm just trying to soak in some stuff. And I'm sitting there watching, and we went to the Bacchus Ball, and we went to something else. I'll tell you a story of what was interesting. This is what the newbies we were. So we get picked up uh, in a car, and we're coming in, and our driver hands the three of us, we know nothing, hands the three of us this spray-painted gold coconut. Yes, Zulu <laughs> coconut. And, we, yeah. and it's like, okay, great thanks very much
1: <laughs> and, and
3: he made a big deal about it. He was like, okay, well, there you go, and little do we know that this is like such a cherished uh thing yeah right yes, sir and it was like, we had no idea <laughs> that was our first introduction, like huh, well, I wonder what this is but anyway so we so we did a, we did a lot of wonderful things and saw beautiful entertainment went to Kerns and saw his amazing warehouse and all of his work. It was just great, but when I was on my own at one point, I was at some side street somewhere, and literally, it wasn't so much a float that gave me this Azza, It was a marching band. And so what happened was, here: here's this parade moving through, and like parades do on occasion, they congest, and they have to stop, and they wait. And then they decongest, and they start moving again, right? Yeah. And what was interesting was that this marching band and this group of performers, but more than anything, it was this marching band, had a song that they play that is typically, you know, a parade has a loop, a parade loop, and each and each unit can have their own song or the whole parade can have one song. And it loops endlessly as it rolls down the street because nobody sits there and listens to it for half an hour. It, it rolls past them, right? right? And it loops, 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 but that's what you get. And me being a theater director, That was always kind of not very satisfying to me because I couldn't tell much of a story. It just was a loop and it rolls past me and I get whatever I get as it rolls past me in a few minutes. And I watched the band and the band had their parading choreography and their parading song, but then they had to stop and they went into a whole new song and a whole new piece of choreography. And it was cool. And I was like, now that's interesting. And then the parade decongested and they went back into their regular routine. So that gave me, so that gave me the genesis of an idea. Again, based on Main Street Hop, that was a street show. I said, gosh, could you make a parading street show? Could we take a parade and have it one music track? Could, could be several music tracks per unit. And it goes down. And let's say it just came out of Small World Gate and it's right in front of the Matterhorn to Small World. And it, that's the length of that unit of that parade and it stops. And when it stops, it goes on to another whole musical number, a production number, if you will. Just think of it that way. Like a four-minute production, choreographed production number that can be interactive with guests, can move in ways that a parade can't move because it's sitting still now. Now they can choreograph between units, they can move about. And then at the end of that number, we go back into track two. It picks itself up, moves on, sits down around the hub, does the same thing, picks up, moves itself down around Main Street, does the same thing. And that was the genesis of Pardi Gras and how Pardi Gras as a parading street show worked. And parading street shows became, I mean, I did a bunch of them. Lion King Parade was a parading street show. The, the, the place of the electrical parade in Tokyo was a parading street show. There's just a lot, of, a lot of parades picked up on that way to do a parade. And that came from Pardi Gras, or rather from Mardi Gras. That's amazing. Well, you guys watching that happen, I said, ah. So that's how that worked. Wow. Because so many parades do that now.
2: Yeah,
1: movie that. Right. Yeah, that had never been yeah. done,
3: that, at least formally. I mean, it, I guess it had done, been done organically out of necessity in, in, in Mardi Gras because they did them all the time. So they sitting around, hanging around, but it had never been introduced because it had technical requirements. If it was live, it was one thing. But to try to do that technically with recorded music, uh-huh. Was a whole other beast, right? It required unique choreography and it required you to think differently because it be, a parade is individual units. But when you become a street show, you're one unit, mm-hmm. right? Right. You're one, now you're suddenly one big, like, halftime show. And then you break back into parading units that can be disparate and different from each other. Very different. But yeah, they do it a ton now. And that, in my experience and knowledge, they'd never, that had never happened
1: before. Was that the thing that you were telling me about? It was a prototype uh, that you were putting. on is this something yep,
3: different? Yep, yep, that was it. Where
2: did the idea for the giant character balloons come from?
3: You know, to be honest with you, I think we had those okay somewhere oh. for something. I think I inherited those. Oh, and okay. I'm not, and I'm not positive. That's where that I kind of mentioned this, Part of ground parade was interesting. It's kind of parts and pieces, and I could be wrong about this because I know I used those same parades in this daytime show at Epcot. But I don't know which came first. So we could have built those. Claire Graham was the art director at the time, really, really talented guy. And it was to be a festival piece. It was a, it was to be, what was interesting about Party Grog, aside from, aside, Party Gras was cool. Party Gras, was talking about Copia, so Buster Poindexter, you
1: yes, may yes. To, All but, over you know, the he videos. Was really yes. famous
3: for doing hot, hot, hot. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Well, that yes. was, that was... Uh, <laughs> I sat in a session with him. He recorded a special version of that for us, and that was the music it paraded to. It was hot, hot, hot. When it sat down into a street show, it did a medley of the Miami Sound Machine based on the rhythms. Going to get you, yeah, yeah. So it was this this parade, partied. It was rocking. I put in a whole bunch of dancers on stilts that played conga drums. Rhythm was really important in the parade. So it was very, one of the things that I took away from Mardi Gras is that rhythm was everything, right? right it yeah. transcends melody. Melody is hard mm-hmm. in a street, right? But rhythm, people get that and they responded to that. Yeah. So we had drums and tambourines and a lot of rhythmic stuff going on and big visuals. I wanted, parades frustrated me visually as a director because they never got up big enough. You know, if you're standing on the street and you're two back, Great. I can see Cinderella up on the second tier of a float, but I can't see the dancers half the time unless I have my kids in the front row. So I put people up on stilts. I put people and I grab people and I, and wherever I could, I try to bring guests to participate in some small piece of choreography, whatever it was. Or we would have characters meet and greets along the side because I could just tell I had young kids at the time. My kids grew up at Disneyland. And so I just could, I could just filter. What would they think was cool <laughs> through that?
2: And I just nice. did it, you know. Uh, Mike, well, first, can I just for our listeners? I just want to explain that Buster Poindexter was for anyone under forty. <laughs> <laughs> Buster Poindexter was this like barfly lounge singer personality. He had the hair. Yeah, yeah, the hair. Uh, his The guy's name was uh, David Johansson. And he that's right. wore a tuxedo, and he, and he was part of the Saturday Night Live band. And he kind of got his prominence in there, and he, he sang Hot, Hot, Hot. And I think it was the Walt Disney World Easter Parade where him and Susan Egan, the voice of Megara, yes. were going around right. the parks. And that's how he ended up in Disney. And then, boom, he takes over the float, and he starts singing Hot, Hot, Hot. And I was wondering, so that was recorded specifically for use in the parade?
3: That's right. That was the, that was the song that I picked. To be the soundtrack, the whole soundtrack of the parade was Hot, Hot, Hot. And he recorded it and did the whole intro to it and all of that stuff. So yeah, we spent we spent two days in a recording session doing a remix of and a remake a re-recording of Hot, Hot, Hot and other lyrics and intros and all that kind of stuff.
2: He seems like a pretty fun guy to be around.
3: He was great. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was great. He was great.
2: Now, was there any pushback on interacting? Like, okay, we're going to grab the guest. We're going to put him in the conga line on Main Street. Was there any pushback whatsoever? They were like, hey, go ahead.
3: No, nope. I mean, there was There was some, you know, we had, to do, we had feasibility issues because we had to make sure that if you grab a kid from here, goofy you got to get the kid back there <laughs> right so you don't you can't grab the kid from here and then and then drop him back on <laughs> 100 feet down the road so <laughs> <you>
1: gotta,
3: so, <laughs> so kid. there was there was some of that logistical stuff that they had to be aware of you know as they did stuff but you know i never got i never got any pushback at all maintenance never you know maintenance wasn't i wasn't i wasn't real piper with them because i had a penchant my entire time at disney i was shooting off a ton of confetti yes <laughs> uh, and and they weren't happy with me for doing that <laughs> oh, but, yeah. oh. but, but confetti alone on main street if i shoot confetti on you on main street you are suddenly engulfed oh yeah in a, in an effect that is so cheap and so magical and you it's a shared it's a shared experience right oh, you you are now suddenly sharing this experience with thousands of people, it's a very cool, it's a really valuable cool effect. Uh, and I loved it. And and the sweepers hated me.
1: Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, did, did the sweepers and not learn the New Orleans way of clearing out Bourbon Street? Did it,
3: no. You know? They, <laughs> you know, but they did great. They did great. And it really wasn't the sweepers. It was really the operations people. Because what would happen is the Suffolk gets stuck on their feet. They get tracked into attractions. Oh, all over the place. there's that, I, yeah. You know, the VP of operations say, I found Mylar uh, confetti in my office today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What about the
2: beads and doubloons? Like they, they that—that's like the only parade that I know of. Where like I remember the first time I saw a parade in Disney, I'm like, when they're going to start throwing things? Like uh, it, that's something in New—it was natural for us. Yeah, it's yeah. very natural that there. you expect at a parade they're going to throw beads and doubloons. Yep. And to my knowledge, that's the only Disney parade that's ever done it.
3: I, I think that's right. Now there were some, there were some, uh, some momentary. And again, it was a long time ago. I do remember there were some momentary concern, legal concerns about that. You know, and and also I, I learned why, you know, they, they, did you know, they used to toss those coconuts from the floats? Yes. yes. Oh, yes. we Stop remember. Because they kept beaning people with these coconuts. And they said, well, that's, a, this is a bad idea. We probably shouldn't do this. And, and they hand them. Right? Yes. So yeah. So we yes. had to be very careful. And I said, you, and they had to make eye contact before they did those throws. Yeah. Right? yeah. You got to make eye <laughs> contact. <like that. laughs> yeah. But aside from that, we really didn't, you know, we just didn't, it wasn't like that. It wasn't very few knows. At least for entertainment, you know. Uh, when it got to that point, I, I don't remember being told no because something was too outrageous or anything crazy like that. But I tried not to do that anyway, so to get told no. So it just, you know, it 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 just didn't kind of work that way. It, they were they were very accommodating for the spirit of the story and the experience. So if they could make it work, th- they were going to make it work.
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like here in New Orleans, like you're talking about Zulu. And that was one of the few parades that kinda had a signature throw, like the coconut or the spear, spear. or whatever that they would hand off uh, off the float. Uh, I beads. Think, yeah, uh, Bacchus had the balloons or whoever the king was. Right. Like that would but that was about it. Now like every parade has a signature throw. So there's a parade called Muses, which is an all female parade, where they're throwing high heeled, like stiletto shoes. shoes. Glittery, oh, highly man. highly
1: decorated. <laughs> Very. So
2: coconuts <laughs> no, but th- Pitching shoes off a float. High heels, like stiletto. Thing.
0: Yeah. Fine. No problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you still put them in plastic bags, though. So oh, do they? I think so. Well, you don't want to ruin I the decorations, see. yes. <laughs> yeah, Disney Legal would have, would have had something to say about that, I'm
2: um, sure. Oh, man. <laughs> so now. Okay, so there's obviously an influence of like like this Caribbean kanga calypso, yeah, kind yeah more of vibe. than just New Orleans. Yeah. So did yeah. you go uh, any like to Rio or something to go?
3: Place? Nah, we wanted. I wanted to, yeah. uh, I, but you know, but but, but, but to be honest, it's been a sheer boondoggle. It was just that's all. I, I had what I kind of needed, you know, and I and I, I you know I, I had the inspiration. I saw, I saw, it work. I mean, I knew we could make this work, and rhythm was, and the music, and the volume, and the and the tempo of the music, and the kind of music, it had to be infectious, and I, so I, I, I knew all that stuff would, I knew all that stuff would work. I'd to love to go on. We talked about doing that, but I, we just for some reason never made it there, and probably good, good idea, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, part, you know, Marty Gerard was a uh, was was a real eye opener in this in in how you do events and and how a city does this and manages crowds but also just how it creates this really energetic sense and uh, the unique experience that a parade is because parades are very unique experiences from an entertainment point of view and so i knew if i could connect and it's and throws is what is the interactive part right, right. throws is what makes what connects guests to those praise otherwise they pray by and i don't care if you're here or not right we mm-hmm. right. do the same thing whether or not you're there or not i just go where well, i might as well be a movie i'm gonna roll on past you <laughs> but uh but it doesn't do that and so that stuff said man and i was all about engagement and about trying to find those opportunities to tell a story which uh which sitting down and tell, doing a production number let me tell a story and looking for opportunities for engagement You know how do I engage with you? How do I create memories? How do I how do I extend this brand into your life? Because Disney, you know, when I ran creative development, I would talk to my 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 staff, and I say, you you do have to, you all understand that people, and I don't have to tell you, you know this, you know people marked time and their lives through Disney. Yeah, yeah, they just did that first time you went. Nobody. Nobody doesn't remember the first time they went to Disneyland or Disney World. People in California, man, I went there for, you know, for high school graduation. People I got married at Disneyland. I I asked my wife to marry, you know, my I remember the first time I brought my baby girl to Disneyland. People mark time about their experiences with that brand and particularly that theme park. So the work that we did, I took really seriously. And I said, you know, this is a, you have to understand how important this is. This isn't just some happen chance entertainment, you know, it's not like that. And good isn't good enough. And these people are spending money and saving up for these things that are sometimes once in a lifetime experiences. So we owe them the very best we can do. And so that's the way we that's the way we approach it. And the company the company looked at it at that time that way too.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you mentioned engagement, and one thing that impressed me uh, watching videos of this parade is how. Much engagement you got from the crowd into the parade. It was amazing to me, and not only with the people that were involved, but also the people in the parade. It seemed yep. like it was curb to curb cast members as part yeah. of the show. It was, it was. I mean, they weren't lying with said this is the biggest show in Disneyland.
3: Yeah, it was huge. It was a lot. There was a lot of people in that show. And again, there has to be for me. There has to be. You know, we had done. You know, the uh, Disneyland before me and since me have, have they'll still do day parades that are pretty small, sometimes promotional in nature, you know, and and they have an operational function as well to declog certain things from other areas at certain times. So they, they're there for a reason. But that you have to have a certain amount of scale visually and energy to to make a good party. Right, right. You know what I mean? If, a, if it's not if it's not visually full enough, or if there's not enough people, you know, a crowded kitchen's really fun. But if there's only two people in it, it's probably not a party, <laughs>
1: right. right? Yes.
3: But if you put seven people in that little kitchen, it could be pretty fun. It's like ah, ah, because there's an energy associated with the confines that buildings and 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 architecture give you. That's true at theme parks as well. So that was always really important to me to trying to find a balance economically and visually and casting that could create that sense of energy is really what and visual stunt visual sort of uh awe if you will that was big enough to go wow and it had to fill your vision in some fashion right yes um, absolutely so
1: yeah, i remember seeing pictures online it's like i think maybe somebody from splash mountain or on top of maybe one of those was the skyway back then i think so
3: Maybe. Yeah. But it I had been there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and they're, they're taking pictures, and over the rooftop, you see the balloons just hovering. <laughs> just like just sticking with, like, you see it above the roof line. And it's like, this, I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, even, the scale of this yeah. parade is unreal. I didn't even think about <laughs> you that. You know, what
3: was funny is that we had to, when it stepped out, you know, because the parades, you know, came out from where Small World is located, Small World Gate, and went down and, and went out the Main Street Gate and then it wrapped back around a parade headquarters
1: Mm -hmm.
3: it i believe it was party ground i'm pretty sure it was that literally we had to deflate and i think it might have been roger rabbit but i'm not positive (laughs) we literally had to deflate one of those balloons partially to get them underneath some and i don't remember i could have been it could have been the the sky buckets i know something we had to deflate it literally for a three seconds the operator had to take it down to be able to get underneath something and oh inflate god. it again uh during the so parade
1: it, it, this happened during the course of the, the procession
3: yep oh yep. my god <laughs> Yep. wow yep. but it was in a neutral space because i think it was down around matterhorn and 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 people at, at disneyland there's a pinch point right at Matterhorn. right yeah okay. and it's it really tight and people and we don't even put up guest ropes there because it's too tight, we can barely get the parade through there, and so I, that's where I think we did it.
2: I, yeah, I was going to ask because as soon as you he said the skyline, that's the first thing I was thinking is like, how did those balloons clear that?
1: And, right. and
3: so that, right. that's- and I, and I think it was, and I, but you know what it could have been? I think it could have been. It might have been a monorail track, actually. Oh, oh that makes wow. sense. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Wasn't there like so, what like light magic? Didn't y'all have to redo
3: Small World right in order to get that to fit? No, no, so small, so small? No.
0: Okay. So small?
3: So I did so I did so the the last project I did for Disney was I did I did the overlay for Small World Holiday.
1: Ah, okay.
3: And created that. Light Magic was just its own giant beast. Light Magic was a, was a was a was another whole show and a half. So but I I We didn't have to. I don't think we had to take anything down. It was just huge.
2: Yes, what I thought is that they had to expand an area. That's what I. So that way, it could make the curve over
3: there. I I, maybe. And And to be honest with you, could have because those units, the float units, were massive. They were huge. And it could have, they were like twice the size of a normal float unit.
2: Yeah. It's just something that you don't, as a guest, like us, I never even thought you about that. About. I didn't think about the Skyliner. I didn't think about the parade. Like you don't think about that sky. I said sky. Well, the, the monorail. Yeah. yeah the yeah. monorail, track, all that you don't think about having, but when you design the parade, of course you would have to come up with solutions for all that. All so, the crazy logistics. logistics. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
3: There's a lot of, there's so much technology involved in those shows. It's just uh it's astounding, and lots of it is groundbreaking technology that that is not mainstream at all. A lot of it was audio based, you know, just the way the wireless systems to get into audio and the bricks that controlled effects and all of this stuff. It was and embedded in the street, and it was uh, really talented, complex technical work, you know, and lots of partnership between Disneyland, you know. Text and and wdi techs
2: i tell you what man y- y'all it impresses every single time whenever we sit there and look at a parade i mean just engrossed and the music is such an important part of it and that's what i like about so many of the parades now it, they just play the best of like you know like really you get like, 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 a, like all the songs show. you've ever yeah, heard of yeah. before but i we were talking about it at dinner like we just had the party Grass song stuck in our head all day today <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah we, we've He's been not kidding yeah we've been humming that uh, michael <laughs> <laughs> like like crazy i mean did you have a hand in that creation
3: <laughs> sure yeah mm-hmm. okay so bruce healy and i so we worked on all of that like so we did original music for all of our shows for all of, almost all our parades. Light Magic was all, all we did all that stuff. Now for Lion King, Lion King was a, was, a, was a parading street show and it used two songs from the movie that did that. But lots of times they would, parading, so Bruce Healy was the musical director, composer, really, really, really talented guy. Very unbelievably talented guy. And we went, we actually would go all over the world recording 64-piece symphonies for stage shows. You know, we would go to Ireland. We went all over the place recording great big symphonies for these soundtracks, for all the stage shows, had big, huge 64-piece orchestras. Every one of them, all of them, Pocahontas did, Lion King did, uh, Hunchback did. They all had big, you know, that parade did. So these are big, big recording sessions. And Bruce composed 99% of that work. He had some guest artists, like there was a guy, the guy who did my score in – for Epcot was a guy named John Debney who went on to be a very, very successful uh, film composer. And, uh, you know, so it just, you know, Disney is a, is a, is a great place. is one of the few places I know of because I have so many musician friends that you can actually retire from being a musician because it employed or used to employ so many musicians. Hear, hear. And so it's a place of music and there's lots of talented people that want to work there and uh, play there and uh, and spend years playing there long time so yeah so yeah so when, when we would we would literally you call it routining we would routine out and a stage role. if i'm doing a stage role, i'd routine it and so we would do a basic composition say you know we're gonna this is the length of time i need it to go i'd like it to go into the bridge here and then we would go back over it And routining it would mean we'd add effects pieces to it i'd add sweeten it with you know i've got a i got a gag here i need some drum cadence here i need a you know i need whatever i I need a cowbell right here (laughs) (laughs) You know, but whatever you know or i need a you know i need an explosion right here you go back and you routine it based on what is going to happen because you have to choreograph this whole thing out because you're in the studio now you know you don't want to go back in and have to routine something so i'd work with choreographers and myself and bruce and we composed things that did that from stage shows to parades or everything so they were very intentional what they were going to do and how they were going to do it.
1: Yeah, a lot of what you describe sounds like m- my rehearsals whenever I get booked for musicals and stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, I, at this time, I, at this comedic bump, I need to hit, get a cowbell here. I need this. Well, that's right. Stuff. That's right.
3: I need a hit here. I need a hit on this bar, and uh, and that's how it went. Right. That's and excellent. I need it louder and slower and softer. And you're going too fast now because the kids can't maintain this pace because they're marching down the street for two miles. So right. you know. <laughs>
2: So I got, I got a question for you, and you probably don't even remember this. But I, I, watching the parade back, the beginning of the parade features a, a pretty uh, unique band. Uh, they had tubas and trombones and trumpets and drums, and it kind of like the instruments you'd associate with a Mardi Gras parade, like the big brass band yep. kind of thing you would say. Yep. But they wore armadillos on their heads. They had an armadillo drum, a remote-control armadillo. They were all armadillos, and they handed out these Honorary membership cards that refer to them as the extremely secret royal
3: eternal fraternity of- It was the fratella, it was the fratella. it was the fraternity of Armadillos. Oh wow, you do remember this.
2: <laughs> <I, Totally. laughs> I've never seen them before or
3: since or anything. Can you shed some light on Yeah, they were so great. So so that was an improv group that I hired in eighty seven from San Francisco called the Fratelli Bologna.
1: Okay, <laughs> nice.
3: <laughs> and there, and there were four guys or five guys, a couple of them kind of came and went, but super creative, super talented. And I hired them in, I guess, 88, 89, something like that, whatever blast the past was, to be streetmosphere improv performers. And they did, they were brilliant. And they did sketches and they do props and they do, and it was all street-based improv. So we set them loose. We set them free to do some presentational stuff. But 90% of the stuff, we, we set them free on guests. And, and that's what they would do. My, my first time, I went up to interview with them and, to, and interview those guys as potential working there. Mm-hmm. They put me to work. They had a gig at the San Francisco <laughs> Aquarium. And they had a gig where they were an Italian film crew. <laughs> and oh my They God. were working this private party, and they, it was like oh, classic. And they all had different roles, and, you know. And I was the sound guy. I was the deaf mute sound guy. <laughs> 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 deaf mute. And I had a boom mic, and uh, <laughs> we're walking around. And you basically just harass guests. And they were geniuses. They were so great at it. And so uh, they were there for uh, probably three years, off and on for a long. I kept them around for a long time. Wow. Off and on. And I for I until you mentioned, them, I forgot about the fraternity of the armadillos. Sure, they had <laughs> all those armadillo hats. They had little, little cards that they gave out. Yes, membership you, cards. Yeah, mm-hmm. you you can still find them on eBay. <laughs> and, I, like, and I have no idea where that came from. That came from whatever. I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I really don't. But I know that we. But that was that wasn't unique to the parade. They were in the park doing that as well. Okay, so they, oh, okay. They they were in various lands doing that and engaging guests and getting to become members of... And the, you had a little uh, pledge, you said, or something, you had to, like... Uh, I can't remember, something that was part of the totally, <laughs> uh, with these knuckleheads. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they were they were very funny. Really, really, really funny.
2: Because so much that's in the parade, like, you know, there, there, there are parts in the parade where you see the jester, the Mardi Gras jester. Right. You see the yep. Mardi Gras you Indian, uh, like, a, like... Yeah, the a headdress. Husband, feathers, feathers, yeah. Kind of like a peacock. Exactly. You see so much of Carnival mixed into it. But the armadillos, I'm like... What's the damn connection with the
3: armadillos? <laughs> <laughs> okay, random. Completely random. Uh, nothing to do with anything. I think they were in the park at the time, and I don't know.
2: No, they, don't know they were right. great. They did a good job leading off the prey. They were getting people excited. Like.
3: But you know what it was? I'll tell you where that inspiration came from. Okay. So I, I was a huge fan of early Cirque du Soleil.
2: Oh, uh, wow.
1: yeah.
3: And Cirque du Soleil's genius in the early, early days, before they became a fixture in Vegas, was that they always had clowns warm up the audience yeah. Yeah. always and that's why i used them in that way so they were warm-ups for the bread.
1: i mean it was brilliant it set the stage yeah. for engagement right off yeah. the bat and
3: it was fun and it was engaging and it was just silly and, and cool yeah no oh. perfect absolutely perfect
1: uh, <laughs> man michael it's it's been a really awesome time talking with you man uh, maybe we can have you back on to talk some of your other projects like i, I saw in your portfolio uh, world of color a golden horseshoe review maybe we can get some stories about sure. you with all that in the, in the future at some point it'd
2: be
3: it' be my pleasure guys it was fun yeah,
2: yeah. absolutely man I had a great time having you on man I'd love to talk about light magic because i i, I don't believe that that one gets its due because I've, I've i've heard people talk ill of it but i've watched it i honestly i was I was I hadn't made it to Disney. I had to get older and make my own money before I could travel to California. That's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I remember catching it online and being like, "I don't understand what the deal is." So I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that
3: too uh, one day, if you. No doubt that that has a that has a that that's that's almost a soap opera that that show (laughs) oh my god oh that sounds good (laughs) a multi-chapter book that maybe
1: yeah we'll have to maybe we'll tease tease and maybe we'll hear that
3: i hope so yeah because
1: it's it's like uh, the way those floats look at light magic it's like that's what our mardi gras floats look now oh my god i'm I'm looking at the video i'm like wait that looks like our parades now with the fiber optics and all that stuff so I think that'd be a, a great discussion in the future if you if you want to come that'd be back
3: great. on. Absolutely. Just let me know. We'll, yeah. we'll do
1: it. All right. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate right, your time well, so much, man. Right. And you have yeah, a great thanks, night. Guys. Have Thank a good you. one. You too. You too. Bye. Bye. Well guys, we hope you enjoyed that discussion with Michael Mains, man. Really, really awesome. manager really awesome. Oh, so with much him. fun. A lot nice. of fun. I look forward to having him back on just to tell us more stories. I, I could listen there. and talk for hours. Really. Yeah, I could, too. Yeah, I, There's a lot of things that he's done that I'd love to hear. But look, uh, let us know your opinion about the show. If you have any questions for him, you can get in touch with us to share those opinions or questions through the following ways. Shoot us an email at com, or call or text us at 1-815-WEEKEND. That's 1-815-WEEKEND. Oh, 669 six. I almost got him that
2: time. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm
1: talking. My timing almost was almost, got him. almost. close. It's like, yes, close. I was a little late. Timing was a little late. Okay. Got it. It. Um, so, we, of course, we have a couple of guys to do things outside of the podcast. Number one, uh, if you want to book a vacation, um, you could do it through Lee of Magical Moments Vacations, which a, is a platinum earmarked Disney travel agency. So, if Disney loves them. So will you. Make sure you book with Lee today by shooting him an email at lee at com. A portion of every booking Lee makes goes to support Girl Power to Cure as well as the Magic R.A. podcast. That's true. And we got Eli. He does things with comics, man. Tell him what you got going on, sir.
0: Sure. If you pay attention and go to the lovely website called Ivory Comics, www.ivorycomics.com, you'll see all the projects I have work on, such as Project Gation, Savages, and the to Be Damn. All artwork is uh, fully colored. No ads, sort of the Magic Highway podcast, so you can get a full two issues basically in uh, in one book. So you get your money's worth right there. Uh, as well as when you go to the site, you can see uh, interviews and blogs. And, of course, a link to this podcast so you never miss a beat, episode, an interview, so you get all the good synergy because that's what Walt wanted. That's what we do. Facebook.com. Or you can find me there, Eli Chivery. As long as you're a real person, lovely to meet you. If you're a bot, cannot greet you too tired for that. I don't want you getting in my credit card account, taking all my money before I have a chance to pay my house mortgage.
1: <laughs> my house mortgage.
0: Yes. Also, Project Geisha has a Facebook page, so Facebook.com slash Project Geisha. Instagram, EIV504, right there, posting up the hearts and the likes to see what you got. And, of course, on Twitter, I can be found at hancock 166 so if you appreciate the madness, then you just bring me the gladness. Thank you very much. And, of
1: course, once again, we just want to thank Michael for coming on the show. So we definitely appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Very much so. To hear yes. more of your stories, man. Very, very inspirational stuff. Very, yeah. So a bunch of creatives, that was uh, like a breath of fresh air to hear. Yeah. For sure. And look, in addition, there's so many ways to support the show as a whole, and you can find them all on our website, magicrway.com. Plus, if you want to elevate your support of the Magic Rway podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash magic our way there you'll find six awesome tiers to support this show any way in which you can support the show is deeply appreciated we also want to thank you for being a loyal listener and we always love hearing from our listeners all opinions are always welcome on the magic our way podcast so make sure you get in touch with us today so more weekends we say Kwajarini. my name is kevin and i'm danny magic out <laughs> I have every intention of eating those bananas for breakfast, but I still somehow end up with tacos. No one can resist the magic <laughs> and the mystic ooh, ooh, ooh. music of the, of the party, party gras. Gra. No uh, one can uh, resist uh, ooh, the magic and the mystic what, what? music of the party gras. Oh.
0: Hey, it's Lee from the Magic Our Way podcast.
1: And when I'm not stuffing tacos down my throat, I'm listening to the Mad Hatter Radio. Adios, amigos.